Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Literary Studies on the New Books Network. I'm your co-host, Annette Joseph-Gabriel. Today, I'll be talking with Leila Amin about her new book, Postcolonial Paris, Fictions of Intimacy in the City of Light. Leila is an assistant professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her scholarship and teaching focus on contemporary African-American and African diaspora literature, gender and sexuality, and urban spaces. Her work has appeared in publications such as American Literature, Culture, Theory, and Critique, Postcolonial Text, Black Camera, and College Literature. Thank you, Leila, for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So I'm so excited to talk about this book because it is, I mean, for personal reasons, like this just touches on all of the things that I love. Like you're talking about Paris and you're talking about Paris in these really interesting ways. Um, so I'd like to start by asking you, how did you come to this project, particularly a project that reads across the works of North African and African-American authors? I think I came to this project in a personal and sort of a roundabout way. I was born in France, um, so I'm the daughter of Maghrebi immigrants, but I wasn't really uh, steeped there in Maghrebi or French ethnic culture. Um, as I explained in the introduction of postcolonial Paris, the scholarship on postcolonial Francophone literature has really blossomed in the US and Britain. And so um, in France, I, I just loved languages and I studied English and American literature in college. And, you know, we were reading uh, Austin and, and the classics of British literature and American literature. And then we read Ralph Ellison, Invisible Man. And that book really changed mm. things for me. It was the first time that I felt that it really spoke to my experience as a racial minority uh, living in France like no other book had. And, and then I decided, well, I'm going to go to the U.S. and <laughs> I'm going to study African-American literature. Um, so I did that. I came to Indiana University. I was really drawn to particular authors who had made similar connection as I had because they, in their writing, like I'm thinking of James Baldwin and William Gardner Smith, two authors who really spoke about the powerful African-American identification with uh, Algerians in Paris. And so that was really interesting to me. Um, I think perhaps because it, um, it mapped different forms of solidarity that were not based on common origin in the slave trade. So they were transnational solidarities, but they were based on something else. They, they were based on shared exclusion or experience of urban exclusion as well as um, also a common shared experience of uh, racial stigma in public discourse in about Blacks and Arab subjects in Western cultural production. So Baldwin and Smith 
to me were were so important because they spoke about race and they dissected what constituted it in their fiction. And they address, for instance, the trope of the Algerian worker as a sexual predator, um, the primitive and angry man whose excess of masculinity needed to be curbed, you know, by the French state. And I was really drawn to this intersectionality of race, masculinity and sexuality was something that I wanted to examine. So I came to study African-American writing, and then I expanded that. I did a degree, my PhD is in comparative literature, um, to draw comparison between African-American, Maghrebi, and Franco-French cultures. So this is how it started. It's a sort of profound identification with uh, Ralph Ellison, Invisible Man, and, and that changed sort of the course of where I was going to live and what I was going to study. Wow, that's a really fascinating story. Um, so Paris to the U.S. via Ralph Ellison. Um, I, I really appreciate what, you know, the way that you just described the, the conversation, right, um, among these different authors and, and artists um, and filmmakers as, as mapping forms of transnational solidarity, right? So in your analysis of kind of, you know, this, this, this mapping um, in, in these texts, you use the term post-colonial as a kind of central analytical frame, right? It's in the title and it becomes one of the the main lenses through which you read um, these conversations. How do you use the term post-colonial, particularly, you know, in a moment like this where there's a lot more talk about decolonial, there's a lot more talk about, you know, Black internationalism or transnationalism. How do you use post-colonial and why is it valuable as an analytical frame for your work? It's true that the term feels almost like a little bit dated, right? People are not using it. There's, there's been articles about the end of post-colonialism. So why use a term like this when everybody's talking about globalization and transnationalism and other terms have become much more um, uh, used in general in the scholarship? I think to me, what I wanted to register uh, or what I really re- wanted to talk about was a spatial imaginary that is racialized and informed by colonial relations. So I wanted to show that race formation was informed by colonial relations, but the legacies extend beyond the colonial era, and and they take new form at times. Um, But so post-colonial was helping me, as a term, was really helping me... um, transcend just the colonial era and talk about, you know, um, both the colonial and post-colonial era, as well as talk about writers who generally don't fit that rubric. In the case of African-American expatriates, um, they don't fit the rubric of post-colonial, and yet they certainly contributed to our understandings of race in their depiction of an Algerian Paris. So for me, post-colonial transcends the temporal and the cultural boundaries and it relates Mm. to um, a sort of imagined geography Um, but I wanted a term that would be recognizable so I, I've read so many books about post-colonial London, and and there, like when people think of post-colonial London, they think of uh, writers of Pakistani or Jamaican descent uh, who are, you know, Black British, and 
I wanted a term that would similarly in the French context index, you know, writers who are racial minorities and who also emerge from the legacies of French colonialism. So post-colonial Paris helped me um, really index that. Um, but it's about a, you know, a Paris, because there is an imaginary, um, a myth of Paris that people like James Baldwin writes about when they talk about how Americans came to a Paris of their own imagination. There is an equivalent myth about post-colonial Paris that is associated with French racial minorities and immigrants who live in the impoverished outskirts and pockets of the capital. And I really wanted to call attention to that uh, space and to that imaginary. And I thought that post-colonial helped me index race and peripheral spaces in the French context. So so let's talk about this Paris, what you described as a racialized spatial imaginary, Um, specifically because some of the texts that you analyze present a discourse that counters the discourse of the French state, right? So we have two competing discourses on on what is Paris? Um, so on one hand, you have the, the state that claims that there's a lack of kind of cultural integration um, in, in these peripheral spaces, right, in the banlieue. Um, but then the texts that you're analyzing, some of them place more emphasis on, on things like unemployment and other manifestations of structural inequality um, to, to, to try to really articulate that, that separation, right, between the center, the city center, and the outskirts of the periphery. Can you give your listeners or give our listeners one example of this kind of critique that these writers are making in in some of the texts that you analyze in your book? Yeah, I think a great text for uh, challenging, you know, the idea of French integration would be Mehdi Sharef, um, his novel Tea in the Harem that was published in 1983. This is sort of the foundational text of Burr fiction, which referred to the, the cultural production of um, French citizens born to Maghrebi immigrants. Um, I think he offers a really sophisticated dismantling of integration in the in the, in, in the French imaginary, uh, there's a, a Republican ideology that stresses the difference between citizens and foreigners and insists that the latter assimilate by erasing their cultures of origin. So it's always culture that stands as a sort of obstacle to assimilation and to integration into French society. So the, the problem with this model is that it emphasizes ideas about cultures that are always supposedly different. And it also puts the responsibility of integration squarely on the shoulder of the immigrant. Uh, He has to erase, you know, um, his culture of origin to integrate. So the onus is on him or her to uh, seek to adopt French uh, mores as if, you know, integration is only uh, through that cultural channel. But there are lots of different structural elements that the author is pointing out that sort of blocks the avenue of integration, uh, mm-hmm. starting from school. So T in the Harem challenges this view of, integra- of integration through the story of a friendship between um, two teenagers, 17-year-old teenager uh, Patrick, who is French, and Majid, who is born in Algeria and who came to Paris at a, as a child. 
And Majid speaks fluent French. He actually speaks slang. His mother doesn't even, cannot even communicate with him um, because of uh, his use of French slang. And uh, like other natives, he dresses in punk fashion, listen to punk music. Um, and he and his friends are sort of uh, eking out a living in, uh, in this banlieue at the edge of Paris, um, a site that is sandwiched between factories and prison. Mm-hmm. And the novel challenges the Republican emphasis on French versus foreigners by concentrating on class borders within rather than outside of the nation. And, and so the banlieue residents, we are shown that they have a very limited horizon between, you know, menial work and incarceration, which is the fate of many of the, the protagonists in the novel. They live in overcrowded apartments with their family. Um, you know, many of them fail at school or, or don't, don't even gain literacy through school. Um, and the two protagonists, after leaving school, struggle to find work and they turn to stealing in the city center. And so the the book sort of, um, the novel book ends their spatial and social confinement by opening in a basement of their estate. Majid is trying to repair his old motorcycle and fails to do that. And then uh, it the novel ends on their arrest in a stolen car in the seaside town of Deauville. So it's a beautiful panoramic view. They're on the beach, and then they get arrested by the police. So it shows like sort of the spatial confinement that this generation is, um, is really uh, experiencing. Mm-hmm. And I think like what I love about this particular story and what it says about integration is that it also revealed that it's not just a, a matter of being in or outside of the nation. Um, to a certain extent, these youths, you know, um, think of themselves as banlieusards, belonging to the banlieue, to those peripheral sites outside of the city. Mm-hmm. And Sharaf himself said that, that his country is not France, not Algeria, but the Parisian banlieue. So it reveals like new forms of identities in the 1980s that compete with national and racial allegiances. Um, and I think that's a powerful novel for that for that reason. Mm. So these these forms of identities um, that you're talking about really permeate your book, right? So you you describe you know your writers, your artists, their characters as as Arab, as Beul, as Maghrebi, as Muslim, um, all these kind of you know that index a lot of things, right? These are racialized categories. These are geographic markers. These are uh, religious identities. Um, and, and in many ways, you show that France is deeply invested in these categories, all the while disavowing them, right? So France is kind of supposedly this colorblind um, um, country. So how do your writers deal with this disconnect between on the one hand, the reality of discrimination, um, you know, like what you describe in in um, in Majid's uh, uh, life and experience, for example, um, and on the other hand, this idealized vision of a colorblind France. Yeah, so I, I, this is something that really interested me: is the kind of strategies that the authors um, really uh, resort to to be able to point out that dissonance. Um, And this is also something that I was really interested in showing because so much of birth fiction has been seen as sociological writing. And I wanted to show how creative this this, uh, writing is. And that is really a mediation on realities rather than just a mirror of it. 
And so um, I take authors who have rewritten colonial tropes. I think that's one way in which they've addressed that gap. Um, Colonial tropes have often symbolized amorous or loving encounters. And they sort of rewrite these colonial tropes in order to show state and public public forms of violence. Um, I'm thinking of a Moroccan author, Drish Haibi, and how he resorts to allegory. He challenges the portrayal of French colonialism in North Africa as a marriage, and this was often represented through the couple. Um, So the Marianne would be shown with a representative of Algeria, and they would form a couple. And so he's challenging that by focusing on a real flesh Franco-Algerian couple. Um, Yalan Waldik is from Algeria, and he falls in love with a working-class woman named Simone, but then their marriage falls apart. They cannot survive sort of the ambient racism surrounding them. And so the couple serves as a sort of microcosm for colonial tension and inequities. And uh, so Waldik, for instance, cannot find work. His neighbors never talk to him, and in fact, encourage his wife to leave him. Um, And I think Albert Memmi famously captured this about his own novel, Agar. He said, the couple is not an isolated uh, island. On the contrary, the whole world is within the couple. So that entity uh, becomes an allegory to talk about colonial tension. Others use um, parody. I'm thinking of someone like Sharef, was the mythology of the Orient, particularly the harem, and he parodies it. So he, the narrator presents his neighborhood as if he were a tour guide, um, introducing reader to an exotic world that he or she may not be familiar with. And, and their class difference is the spectacle on display daily um, in the slums, where a gas bottle explodes by accident on a regular basis as people are trying to stay warm. Um, and so that becomes a way to, to really make fun, poke fun uh, on this mythology of the Orient and to point out that class differences and, and precariousness are shared amongst French and, and immigrants in the working class neighborhoods of Paris. There's lots of ways in which uh, these authors resort to pointing out that gap. We have also a comedy of errors uh, where we have like uh, mistaken identities in a film like Made in France, Origine Contrôlée. We have a French middle class man who is um, confused for an Algerian undocumented transvestite and arrested by the police who want to deport him back to Algeria. And um, and so then I think that that was a really effective way of showing um, how the white subject, subject awakens to his own privilege um, by being mistaken for an Algerian transvestite. And, and so he loses, you know, the good treatment that he was used and felt entitled to. And so we accompany him through his transformation where he's realizing how other people on the other side of the city are living. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very funny uh, comedy too. So th- those are the things that come to mind in terms of um, how they address that gap between you know, their experience of racial discrimination and France's insistence that it's a colorblind society. 
So I want to come back to, to something that you said earlier um, about, about the couple as allegory, right? So depicting these amorous encounters as a way to critique colonial power and its legacy. Um, and one of the ways that I think you, you analyze this in, in a really, really productive um, and helpful way is through your lens of intimacy as one of the ways that you read um, a lot of these texts. How, how does this lens of intimacy allow you to tell the story um, of, of writers and, and artists of African descent in post-colonial Paris in a new way? I was struggling to find a conceptual framework that would really capture um, what is happening on the ground. Like, So I wanted to give a sense of embodied experiences in the city um, that are appearing through these texts, um, as well as um, the, the view as well of... Um, close affiliation, friends, neighbors, right? That there was something of a spatial notion too. And intimacy really was perfect because it signals both a social notion that references these relationships, as well as a spatial notion that calls attention to embodied experiences in the city. And so it helps reveal um, the protagonist feeling of social and effective closeness as well as distance from the residents in the city center. So it's, it's a, intimacy provides a way to talk about like the domain of sexuality, but also the domain of connections through proximity um, and covers a wide range of interpersonal relations, same sex and heterosexual couples, families, friends, and neighbors. And it, it was helpful to me as a way to displace um, the concept of diaspora, which tended to be the dominant framework for talking about experiences of people of African descent in Paris. Um, and I'm thinking of uh, the work of um, Casnav as well as um, Paris, Black Paris, um, Oh, her name is escaping me right now, who looks at uh, African authors in exile as well as um, yeah, mainly African author in exile since the 1980s. And mm-hmm. there we have we don't have necessarily attention to spatial imaginaries, but instead um, individual authors who are cosmopolitan authors. And I wanted a different kind of framework uh, to call attention to collective experiences of race in the periphery. Um, I guess I was also drawn to the work on intimacy by Anne Stoller. Okay. Because she talks about intimacy as a, as a way to talk about power relation, especially asymmetrical relations. And she discusses... Um, the politicization of intimacy as a tool that naturalizes power. And that's something that I, that I was very much drawn to thinking of a a trope like the harem. So images of uh, Algerian naked Algerian women in, 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 uh, in Algiers that are sort of painted by uh, French uh, artists like Matisse and Fromentin. And, and that gave a certain view of Algeria as sexually available as well as inviting of uh, of French uh, colonization. And um, I wanted to 
show how authors have responded to these uh, colonial tropes of intimacy by rewriting them, rewriting the harem, rewriting the colonial couple, etc. So intimacy worked on, I guess, on different ways. It was both a methodology, but it also touched on dominant theme in, in the literature that I was encountering with interracial couples, um, you know, explored by Dries Schreiby, but also African-American authors in Paris. So it's both thematic content and methodology, if that makes sense. So, so your, your, your book is about, is about fictions within the text, fictions and narratives outside of the text in the real world. And your analysis of graffiti kind of blurs the, the, the seeming boundary between the two, right? Between the text and the world. Um, and in your conclusion, you, you do even more to bring these two things together because you dwell on the 2015 attacks in Paris um, and the ways that kind of French state fictions and narratives of exclusion and policing facilitate the conditions for, for such attacks. Um, Given the insights drawn from your book, what do you see as productive directions that France could take after the 2015 attacks? So I wa- there I was really interested in showing um, that the context that of Islamophobia that emerged post-2015 um, terrorist attacks in Paris were already present throughout the 1970s. And so I, I really wanted to map out a longer history for understanding Islamophobia in France and how it's been discussed. And, and so the 2015 attacks just become um, a flashpoint for understanding um, the reception also of cultural production. So we have now more films on terrorism, uh, not just in the French context, but the global context, Hollywood films that uh, look at the banlieue or have different scenes that are set in the banlieue in Paris, including the new Amazon show. Um, what is the name of that? Oh, name is escaping me again. Um, but it, it's fascinating to me how uh, Paris now emerges not just as the city of light, but also in uh, discussions of um, terrorism. Uh, of course, it becomes just simply um, um, a very flattening way of looking at the banlieue. So in general, I think that there's a, a particular moment in one of um, Rashid Jaidani's uh, novel where he really gets to the crux of uh, the problem. He has a protagonist um, who comments on French cinema. He is, he's just uh, been um, seen for a, for a script. He's just read a script and um, was very disturbed about being asked to play the role of a criminal. Um, and so he comments to, to the, to the cineast that, uh, you know, the only room made for racial minorities in France are the role of drug dealers, prostitutes, or terrorists. And, and he um, basically tells them, you are filmmakers, not Le Peniste, <laughs> followers of Le Pen, right? The, mm-hmm. um, the far right uh, party. And the point I think is, is, is really well taken is that there is a, an absence of, um, of representation. Uh, for example, when um, 
French Muslim families are represented in this film. This is a point made by Carrie Tarr. Um, it's always a liability for the main protagonist. It's only by leaving the family behind or cutting roots with the family that the protagonist is able to flourish and thrive. But if he or she stays with the family, then, um, you know, the family is a force for destruction. I think we need different kinds of representations. I also think that on the political um, level, we need more nuance and rounded depiction of lives in the banlieue that it, it Generally, we turn our attention to the banlieue only if there's been a riot or terrorist attacks. Um, and we need different kinds of representation that transcend violence and, and tragedy. Um, and authors like Faiza, again, I feel, really uh, give a different kinds of representation, even though they also touch on, you know, the question of violence and, and poverty in the banlieue. And on the political level, um, I think that we need to track race in the census in France, despite the, the dark history of race, you know, uh, tracking, and, and especially um, during the Vichy years. We need to be able to account for the gross inequities that can only be estimated uh, so far by sociologists. Uh, Patrick Simon says that by not... Um, including racial statistics, France is making the choice of ignorance. And I couldn't agree more. So that's a, that's a really controversial point, right? Um, is, is that, yes, very controversial. Right. I, I, I'm wondering whether you could, you could shed a little bit of light on this for, for our listeners. Is why, why does France not, um, why does the French state not collect um, statistics and data on, on, on racial demographics in the country? Well, I think it's it's tied to the Republican ideology and theory of equality that is based on sameness. So calling attention to differences of race or even sexuality then becomes a way of differentiating citizens and of de- supposedly, for the French, dividing them. But those divisions are already there and they happen on a daily basis where racial minorities face discrimination at all levels uh, of social life, you know, from, um, you know, moving from one class to the next in school and being uh, tracked for different kinds of career, to not being able to get a job, um, to not being able to get lodging outside of the banlieue. So studies have to reconstruct, um, you know, those experiments to track discrimination because in the census, there is no category of race where we can really account for these differences. But I understand, you know, the idea... I understand the resistance in the sense that um, we are asking for for a state-mandated disclosure of racial uh, of a racial background, mm-hmm. um, but I think that France is not even ready to to open the discussion, and I think that's the where the difference lay. Um, it doesn't have to be state-mandated. People can volunteer to mm-hmm. share their racial background if they want to disclose that information. And I think that would already give a lot of uh, information to sociologists and whatnot to track racial discrimination in France. Right, right. That w- It would certainly be more than the nothing that we have now, right? Exactly. Um, so I, I, I want to kind of... to, to end by bringing us full circle to the beginning. In the beginning, you mapped for us your own journey 
from Paris to the U.S. via Ralph Ellison. Um, as you were working on this book, was there any writer or artist that spoke to you in the way that Ellison did when you first began this journey? I, d- I don't know if 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 they spoke to me in a, in a similar way, but I have to say that collectively they made me realize something that I hadn't noticed before, which is that all of these journeys of expatriation uh, by James Baldwin, William Garner Smith, and even Richard Wright, who uh, was opposed to coming back to the United States because of the danger it represented for him and his family politically, um, their narratives end with the return of the protagonist home. And I found that so profoundly interesting that Paris is supposed to symbolize, you know, Mm. um, access to liberation. And yet in James Baldwin, This Morning, This Evening, So Soon, uh, William Garner Smith, The Stone Face, or Richard Wright intended sequel to Island of Hallucination, every single time the protagonists are journeying back home. And to me, it signals a certain disillusionment with exile and with Paris that I'm very interested in unpacking and uncovering. And maybe that will become a new book project. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that's that's actually my next question is, is I'm always so hesitant to ask this question because you've just done a huge thing. You've just published a, a whole entire book and we're already like, what are you working on next? Um, but I'm, I'm really interested to know, you know, just kind of what, what, what directions do you see yourself going in? Well, actually, what I just uh, addressed, this notion of return, is something that I'm playing with because this is also a pattern that I've noticed in Caribbean fiction, you know, with the work of Aimé Césaire, uh, Michelle Cliff, No Telephone to Heaven, um, and so many other, you know, classic of um, Caribbean literature, Edwidge Danticat, um, Breast Eyes Memory, and newer uh, work as well, Naomi Jackson, uh, work about Barbados, also and uh, sort of uh, map out the return of protagonist home. And what is interesting in the Caribbean and at times uh, African context, because I'm also interested in return in African literature, is that it goes against the dominant uh, poles of migration. So these protagonists are returning to poorer countries or countries um, that are at war or that, you know, uh, propose less uh, social and economic mobility for them. And so to me, it seems to signal something about exile. So what what I'm trying to figure out is does return offer a new viewpoint, a new window from which we can examine exile. And part of that question is also a desire to, you know, um, write against the grain. I'm thinking about the work of Paul Gilroy um, that sort of celebrates exile um, and looks at it mainly in positive terms. Similarly, James Clifford talks about diaspora as a positive transnationalism. And I, I'm wondering if there isn't also a cost to exile and at times um, an effective circuit that we're not taking into consideration when we are mainly focusing on, you know, uh, projects of emancipation or economic mobility. 
So that's something I'm very interested in exploring. Um, I don't. It, it seems too big right now. <laughs> it would need to be <laughs> um, to be narrowed. But that's something I'm I'm really interested in um, in exploring. What is Paris? It's a huge question, and you distilled that for us so beautifully in post-colonial Paris. So I'm I'm really looking forward to to where this new work on return takes you. Thank you so much. I've been talking with Leila Amin about her new book, Postcolonial Paris, Fictions of Intimacy in the City of Light. Thank you, Leila, for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.